Good morning. It is good to be with you. Today is Palm Sunday, so it seemed obvious the direction that my thoughts should be going. And um, today is also my anniversary. Um, Today, probably about right now, or sometime close, 18 years ago, Janelle and I said the I do's. Um, And um, Janelle has been married almost half her life now. I'm not sure what that means. But um, she could probably speak to you of the grace of God um, for being married to me for half her life. But I was thinking about it. What would it be like at the marriage altar if all of a sudden you could see everything that would play out for the rest of your life till death? Um, What would we do? Would we just pass out right there in front of everybody? Or would we say, through pain, through trial, through joys, I'm in. And um, embrace it. Well, we're here to celebrate Jesus this morning, and Jesus knew what was coming. He knew, and he embraced it, and he walked it out all the way to the cross. And why? Because of his intense love for you and me. And I'm very thankful for that this morning. So today I'd like to look at an overview of the week before Jesus' death focusing on the triumphal entry. But um, a little over 2,000 years ago, or around 2,000 years ago, this week, these are events that would take place. And it's a little difficult to um, understand exactly the order in which everything took place during the Holy Week. Um, The Gospels bring the same um, stories and put them in different arrangements a little bit. But I have really um, benefited from this study and just kind of got excited about who Jesus is and the work that he finished at the cross and what he is doing now. Um, Starts with blind Bartimaeus healed near Jericho on the way to Bethphage. Three of the Gospels mentions a blind man near Jericho being healed And the gospel of um, Mark names him Bartimaeus. Gospel of Luke gives a bonus incident between the healing of blind Bartimaeus at Jericho and Bethany for the triumphal entry. Um, Jesus had a dinner appointment with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, much to the dismay of many of his followers. So the text today, I would like, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of the Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you about, um, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. 
All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when his disciples went and the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we had, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Triumphal entry. So Jesus sends a couple of disciples to fetch this donkey for transportation. Um, and at first, the um, owner was a bit alarmed when they were taking it and say, what are you doing? And they said what Jesus told him to say, the master has need of him. And they let him go. And um, as I look at these passages, sometimes I'll just do this. I'll just pull out a little side um, application. And one I thought with this illustration is, oh, that we were like this with our earthly possessions. Hey, what are you doing with my whatever? And the answer is, oh, the master has need of it. And we're like, okay, go ahead. It's yours. Use it. Um, Holding loosely to what is ours. So the disciples threw some garments on this thing's back and put Jesus on it and started in Jerusalem. And there were thousands of people. It says a great multitude. I'm assuming thousands. Um, Two of the Gospels mentioned great multitude. And it didn't even say great multitude when they said the feeding of the 5,000. They said 5,000. So maybe they just couldn't count But it could have been a very large crowd all heading to the Passover, kind of together, traveling together. And so there they are, and Jesus on the back of a young donkey, and somebody all of a sudden remembered what Zacharias said. And we read a portion of that this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then the multitude started shouting and singing, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then we start to get a reaction um, from the Pharisees, the Pharisees told Jesus, tell them to be quiet. But um, Jesus told them if, um, and this was recorded in the part in, in the book of Luke, Jesus told them if these would be quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. So 
So the Pharisees were there trying to shut down this scenario, and they were out of control. But you know who was in control? Jesus was in control of that incident. And as we go through, I want to point out here and there to show you, though things looked um, dangerous or risky, um, Jesus remained Lord of every situation as he went through this week to the cross. So, meanwhile, this donkey, I wanted to look at this little donkey a little bit here. Um, I don't know much about donkeys, or horses for that matter, but um, I'm pretty sure you don't take a colt that's never been ridden, and number one, just ride it, and number two, have that much of a circus around it, especially. So here you have people running, carrying the garments back to the front again to lay it on the road, bringing palm branches and flopping them on the road, and everybody's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And um, little donkey just plods along. And we need to be a little bit more like little donkey in our lives. The donkey didn't take any... um, of the show. He could have been a clown, but the donkey just carried Jesus. And that's what I want to be able to do in my life. Um, Ignoring the distractions, just carry Jesus. So I wanted to also look at the contrast here between earthly kings and the Lord, because he is the Lord of all, the creator God, Jesus Christ. Now he is riding this lowly animal. Earthly kings depend on paid military escorts to keep them safe, the finest horses and the fanciest clothes. Jesus rode on a young donkey and was dressed in common clothes. Earthly kings dispensed the lives of their soldiers to preserve their own lives. Jesus willingly gave his life at the cross so that all who believe in him might be saved. When an earthly king dies, that's the end. When Jesus died, it was only the beginning. According to Luke chapter 19, when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, he wept. For he knew its doom because they had rejected his coming. And then when he comes into Jerusalem, he um, enters the temple and cleans house. So the outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. It's a large area. And I'm sure city life has been growing and bearing down on the temple. Well, maybe they didn't have many visitors that needed the outer court But merchants converged on the outer courts, and it was full of animal sales for sacrifices, money changes, because you don't put the Roman money in the temple offering. That would desecrate it. So you have to change money um, to temple money. And um, there was a lot of extortion and taking advantage of one another. Just a really unholy mess out there in the outer court 
and Jesus was just really stirred up about that. Um, and also there was people carrying things through the outer court because it was a shortcut if you're carrying a burden to cut through right here and you could save several hundred steps probably. So looking at verse 13, sorry, of, yes, Jesus, when he walked into the temple, he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So I believe Jesus was angry. And um, cleansed that temple. Um, so after it was emptied, it says in um, it says that the people came to him, the blind and the lame came into the temple, and Jesus healed them. And I like verse 15. It says that the children were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were chanting it probably and repeating it. And boy, that got under the skin of those Pharisees. They would have rather heard the bleeding of sheep and the merchants wrangling um, with customers. But to have children um, being noisy in church, um, that got under their skin. So... Um, I guess not all children know to be quiet in the outer courts of the temple. Um, but the Pharisees wanted to shut, them, shut him down, but Jesus once again owned that situation. He was in their very um, comfort zone, that temple. He was in their space, more or less, where they normally dominated but Jesus came in and did a really provocative thing by pushing over tables and turning animals loose and um, chasing everybody off, replacing it with these sick and the blind coming in to be healed. And the, they couldn't do anything about it because Jesus was Lord in that situation. Jesus was doing his Father's will. Jesus doesn't exactly strike me as passive. Um, though he was angry when he cleansed the temple, I believe he um, was pure. Um, he was angry for the cause of his father's name. Never do we see Jesus angry at people because they deprive him of his personal needs like food or sleep. A good example to follow is that if we are angry, let it be because God's name is being blasphemed and not because a want or need of my flesh is being denied. Notice um, Jesus' heart for the temple of God. It is not a place to take advantage of one another. Jesus called it a den of thieves. It is not a place to be chaotic and distracting. It is a place where people can come and worship and sing loud praises. Hosanna to the Son of David, as the children were singing. 
And it's a place to find healing. That's his heart for the temple. So I'll be moving through different scenes as we move through this week. Um, and the next scene is Matthew 21, 18 to 22. Jesus politely tells the fig tree that it would not bear fruit anymore. And Jesus turned that into an object lesson to teach about faith. Um, saying, if you have faith, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And in, after verse 23, Jesus is questioned over his authority, which he mastered the situation and then taught about the coming kingdom. First, he told the parable of the two sons. One said no and then went, and the other said yes and then didn't. Then Jesus tells the parable of the wicked vine dressers, showing the kingdom of God will be entrusted to others rather than the Jewish nation. And then chapter 22, the beginning, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast, showing that the kingdom of God will be rejected by the Jewish nation or wealthy and great and will be given to other nations and the lowly and the humble. And down in verse 15, the Pharisees tried trapping Jesus with a taxes question and utterly failed. Jesus is Lord over every situation. The Sadducees tried tripping Jesus up with marriage and resurrection question and got schooled. Verse 36, Jesus shared what the greatest commandment is and gave them the Who's David's Son trivia. In chapter 23, Jesus taught against the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, ending by lamenting over Jerusalem, who kills the prophets who are sent to them. Chapter 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and explains what, end, what the end will be like. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man will be like the fig tree in the spring, or the figs in the spring, or like the thief in the night. In chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins, warning all to be ready. And Jesus tells the parable of the talents, showing us that we need to invest in eternal things. Jesus tells how judgment will be carried out, like a shepherd dividing his sheep from the goats. Judgment will fall on the lines of action, not so much profession. For example, they said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? Judgment. Chapter 26, Jesus declares the timing of his crucifixion and the chief priests plan ways to kill him. And then in verse 6 through 13, a woman anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair and weeps over her, over him. And Judas Iscariot scoffs, saying that the worth of that costly ointment could have fed all the poor in Israel for a month. Jesus defends her, saying, she has done this for preparation for my burial. And then verse 14 through 16, Judas goes out. And makes a deal with the chief priest to betray Jesus. 
17 through 25, Jesus partakes of the Passover with his disciples in which he makes known to them who would betray him. And in verse 26 through 30, Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper. You know, it's really interesting to me. It stood out to me more here than ever. The beauty of, uh, not exactly the collision, but the, the point in which the new covenant came was on celebrating Passover. Here they've been celebrating Passover, remembering how the death angel passed over the houses of the children of Israel because of the blood of that lamb spread on the doorposts. The blood of the lamb, and they were sacrificing lambs and remembering the sacrifice and atonement. That was Passover. But on that very same night, Jesus showed them a new covenant when he broke the bread and gave the cup and said, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. And it is of his blood and it is of communion that we remember his blood and his perfect sacrifice. So on that night, it went from the old covenant to the new. Or he portrayed it there that night. So when we have communion, we are remembering Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his blood applied to our hearts. In verse 31 through 35, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And 36 through 46, Jesus prays in the garden. And it is here that Jesus wrestles with his human flesh. No one at ever, no one at any time, not even Jesus, enjoys death. Yet it seems that after his prayer and sweat drops of blood, when he got up, he walked directly to the cross. The struggle was over. He wrestled and won. His flesh, nobody's flesh likes to think about and face death. But Jesus wrestled and won. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 47 through 56, Judas betrays Jesus and they arrest him. And I will read a few verses from chapter 26, verse 52 and 53. But Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, this is when Peter tried to, um, Jesus told him to put up his sword. Jesus told Peter, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword or do you not know or do you not think that I can now call, pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And do you realize how powerful one angel is? I was reading recently in Revelation how um, in the end, an angel of the Lord came down, one angel, 
and laid hold of that serpent of old, the devil, and put a chain on him and dropped him in the pit. One angel. And if one angel can do that, imagine what 12 legions can do. And once again, I reiterate that Jesus was Lord of that situation. He was Lord of it. They didn't understand. Jesus, um, in a sense, played the power of, of darkness to their own demise. I don't remember the reference right now, but there's a scripture that um, says that they would have not crucified him had they known that it would have been the key of salvation. I'm not remembering that scripture right now. Um, Verse 57 through 75, Jesus admits being the Son of God before the council, and Peter denies knowing him. In Matthew chapter 27, Judas hangs himself, and Jesus is turned over to Pilate, and Pilate gives him gives in to the pressure to release Barabbas and have Jesus crucified. Jesus dies after crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Revelations 1.18, it says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So even in death, Jesus was still Lord. Jesus was taken down and placed in a tomb, and the Pharisees set a guard over him so that Jesus wouldn't resurrect. Can you imagine that? So, what I was struck with in my study, and I really enjoyed this study, is the upside-down kingdom, so clearly portrayed by Jesus time after time after time. Here's these powers that are in force, the Romans and then the Jewish leaders, and they couldn't do anything with him. They couldn't make him shut up. They couldn't stop his disciples from um, worshiping him. They couldn't win him in an argument. They couldn't capture him when it wasn't his time. Remember the times when they tried to stone him and he slipped through? He was, he was in God's will. He was under God's hand. And he was Lord over all that situation. And the death of Jesus was not when he failed or slipped or stopped being as powerful. It was all intentional all the way through to the end because of his love for you and I. And since Jesus is the King of kings, over whom death has no power, he lived to the end with no fear of death. And we live in an age of a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty, and yet we have the same Lord, who if we enter into his kingdom, we can live with the same tenacity, with boldness. What's the worst thing that could happen to us? We could die, and that would be awesome. That would be like the beginning. It's not the end. 
It's the beginning. And I believe that Jesus showed us by a pattern of his living, not prescriptive, um, but descriptive. He showed us how to live and how to love and to not be afraid. Jesus walking by the Spirit and doing what his Father said, even if it didn't make sense to culture around him. And going to the cross. Um, ultimately, we are all, when we sign our name with Jesus and, and say we're with him, we ultimately accept whatever comes, even if it were to be a, a painful death. And um, Jesus brings so much life and joy that goes beyond and the death physically that we have all of the right in the world to be bold and filled with a happiness and a light that is unaccessible by the world around us. And that's where I need to grow. Um, you know, Jesus... It's an interesting thing. This scripture up here says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And we use that term, the Lord, a lot. And I do. And there's two um, levels of the Lord, okay? If you will. One is, He is the Lord. He is the Lord. There's no question. He's returning, again, not like the one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, but he's returning with all of his glory and might and power. He is the Lord. He is the creator of the universe. But then Jesus said, I think it was in John, he says, why do you call me Lord if you don't do the things I ask you to do? And that's more personal. Um... I have had a catch in my spirit sometimes praying, oh Lord, this, oh Lord, that. And I said, wait a minute. Is he really, am I really acting like he's my Lord? Because what that means is, you're the boss, I do everything you say. That's the relationship when I call him Lord, my Lord. Now he is the Lord, but he's, he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel and obey him and follow him and be a personal Lord. So let's be ready for his coming. I believe he's coming soon. And we don't want to be, we do not want to be in the wrong kingdom. All right, God bless.